Hey everyone, I'm Rob Lee, and this is Beloved Journal. It's a podcast centered around the radical idea that we should love and be loved in more than just a romantic capacity. My co-host, Mandy McDowell, and I seek out people we have come to admire or wish to know more about and talk about their hopes, their dreams, their challenges, and how they deal with their despair. All of this is through the context and lens of loveliness. The poet Galway Cannell said that sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness. If you need to relearn or reshape your conception of love and the abundance therein, this podcast is for you. Hi, everybody. This is Rob Lee for Beloved Journal. Today on the show, we have Stephen Cottrell, who is the 98th Archbishop of York. The Archbishop of York position has been around since 627, when the first Bishop of York was appointed to the Episcopate. Uh, Stephen Cottrell is now serving after being appointed uh, in 2020 and the confirmation of his election in that year. He serves as an ex officio member of the House of Lords, which is a member of Parliament uh, in, in the United Kingdom and is the Bishop uh, of the Diocese of York and the Metropolitan Bishop of the Province of York, which covers the northern regions of England as well as the Isle of Man. Uh, Today we talk about his new book, Dear England, which I recommend to you. We talk about a lot of things in the future of the church and where the church sits in all of these precarious positions of power and responsibility uh, to handle the, the issues of the day, not only in the Church of England and in the United Kingdom, but beyond. I hope you enjoyed this interview. I thoroughly enjoyed making it with him, and I hope you will take time to listen to our other podcasts. You can find our information at www.belovedjournal.com. Without much uh, further ado, let's listen in. Stephen Cottrell, thank you so much for coming on Beloved Journal. Yeah, great to be with you, Rob. Now, Archbishop, I, I don't know if there is such a thing as a bishop couple, but when is Sam Wells going to be bishop? Uh, that is a question that all of us are here at Duke asking because, you know, I, I went to Duke as for seminary. We love Sam. He's the Church of England representative for us. Uh, he needs to be bishop. Yeah, well, um, these things are not in my gift, uh, but I, I'm not without influence. Um, so I don't want to make a promise that can't be kept. But certainly I, I know Sam. In fact, I was at St. Martin's in the Fields just a couple of weeks ago. Um, and saw him again. And I, I certainly do know what a great person he is. But there's other ways of serving God than being a bishop. And uh, his That's ministry sure. at the moment is hugely fruitful and impactful. So I'm going to leave this one up to God. Well, there, there you go. We were just messing with you, of course. He is a fabulous person, as are you. Um, one of the things you both have in common is is the, the connection with the Church of England, uh, something that is important and, um, you know, to all of us, whether we're Anglican or not. Um, And the Church of England as a representative of the church in the world has had to to reckon with what to do with the pandemic. Um, In some ways to have old churches is to be creative in a time of Zoom. Um, So how are you surviving and where are you finding God amidst the fray? Yeah, so I mean, uh, let me start, it may seem a strange place, let me start with a painting on my wall just over here. So um, just before the first lockdown in the UK started, I was still the Bishop of Chelmsford um, about to leave and become the Archbishop of York. And then the lockdown happened. Um, and the Diocese of Chelmsford, which serves East London and Essex, uh, they had a, you know, they had a collection for me. 
uh, and they bought me a present. They knew it was something I loved. I'm a great fan of the Scottish painter Craigie Aitchinson. Now, people listening to this, you need to Google Craigie Aitchinson and uh, images, and what will come up is endless images of the same thing. He painted and printed the same thing over and over again. Um, and one of the main things he painted was the crucifixion, very primitive crucifixions on a very stark, but usually brightly coloured kind of rough landscape. Um, and uh, usually, not always, but usually there's Christ on the cross alone. And then sitting at the foot of the cross, there's a dog, a faithful dog, nothing else, no other people in the picture. Um, and so I was given um uh, a picture of craigie aitchinson's of the crucifixion christ on his own alone on the cross and i've spent a lot of time looking at it uh, in the past year and i think what that says to me about the way we as a church have responded to the pandemic is that we've had to discover what it means to live the christian life with absolutely everything taken away except uh, for the presence of Christ. Um, so all the things which usually comfort, strengthen, sustain us in our faith, you know, fellowship, worship, obviously, particularly the, the sacraments, you know, we've all been fasting, uh, lay people particularly, fasting from Holy Communion. Um, and yet there is Christ in the midst of it. And, and in a strange way, it's led uh, to a renewed um, and rather beautiful dependency on Christ. So the piece of scripture that has that I keep coming back to is that passage where the woman with the hemorrhages touches just the hem of Jesus's garment. Um, now we're in a time where touch, embrace, meeting has been denied us. Uh, she couldn't touch Jesus also for reasons of illness and cleanliness. You know, as, as you probably know, the reason she didn't touch Jesus was because it was believed at the time that she was unclean. If she touched him, he would become unclean because we know the story works completely the other way around. Um, uh, through her touch, even of the hem of his garment, the full presence of Jesus is communicated. So for me, this has been a time of a reawakening of that understanding of the full and complete presence of Jesus, even when uh, the things which are so beautiful and matter so much and which we miss hugely, even when they are taken away. So I dare to hope that during this dark, dark and difficult time for the world, actually this might be seen as a season of renewal for the church as we become a more deeply Christ-centered church. You're focused incredibly on renewal as an archbishop, as a, previously as a bishop. Um, one of the favorite stories that you tell, I understand, is in your new book, Dear England, um, involves you standing on the platform at Paddington Station and someone asking what made you become a priest, right? Mm -hmm. We're seeing yeah. less numbers of people standing forth for ordained ministry. Uh, we're seeing less and less people attend church. Is, is that lady's question a sign of the times or is it a sign of something deeper within the church militant? What is going on with the church right now from where you sit? Yeah, well, of course, Rob, I don't know, but I've got a few thoughts. Um, and, and my first thought is that, and I can obviously only speak for the UK. I, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I visited the States and North America, you know, quite a number of times, but I don't pretend to really, really know it. 
Um, but but in the UK, um, I think numbers of numbers of people who would who would identify as atheists is increasing, but it's still small. Um, the numbers of people who would identify as Christians is still relatively, you know, it's, it's not a tiny number, but it's decreasing. Um, so, so we know that, that the church, certainly mainstream churches like the Church of England, we have been in decline for some time. And yet the vast majority of people um, will still identify themselves as believing in God or believing in something. Uh, opinion polls still show incredible statistics of the number of people who say their prayers or who pray. Uh, even people who don't believe in God seem to pray. Um, so uh, so some, there's something which I believe, of course, as a follower of Jesus Christ, I believe is something that is, as it were, hot-wired into our humanity. We are made in the image of God. Therefore, it should be no surprise that, um, that we find delight, wonder, um, appreciation of each other and of the beauty of the world and of the things of the world. No wonder that we find a stirring within us that can only really be satisfied when it finds its rest in God. Um, so there's a kind of longing in our culture uh, for meaning, value, purpose. Um, and all that comes out sometimes, like it did on Paddington Station, with I'm just buying a coffee, waiting for the coffee to be made. There's a woman next to me waiting for her coffee. She looks me up and down and says, you know, what made you become a priest? And we get into this discussion because actually the first thing I said to her was, well, you know, the short answer is God. Um, um, you know, nothing makes sense without beginning with the reality of God and then the intimacy of God as God is revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, so that was what I said to her. And then I went on to say, I mean, this wasn't a monologue. We're standing there having a chat. But I went on to say, and I want to change the world um, because I do believe that particularly for this generation, for her generation, I guess she was in her 20s. Um, actually, what they want to know is not just what do you believe, but what is the cash value of that belief in the life that you live? Um, you know, does it make any difference to the life that you live? Um, and therefore, I think the more that we can demonstrate that the Christian faith is a way of life and has a narrative of hope, for a hurting, divided and troubled world, um, the more I think people are going to be interested in the Christian way. So, yeah, I am committed to the renewal of the church, but I'm most committed to trying to live and shape that narrative of hope um, around which people of longing, even if they don't yet believe in God, or even if their belief in God is incohate and unformed, can begin to find hope. That's interesting. And hope seems hard to come by in some particular form or fashion for some people. Um, you know, your job as the Archbishop of York is to cast vision, to do a lot of different things, to wear many different hats, including a mitre. Um, mm. But but I'm curious for, for our American audience, this is a predominantly American audience that listens to this podcast. Yeah. What, can you explain to us exactly what you do as Archbishop of York? And then, you know, you hold a seat in the House of Lords, which is a little different for us Americans who, who deal with the separation of church and state on a regular basis. Yeah. So could you explain to us the kind of understanding of the commingling of political power and church hierarchy? 
Yeah, well, I'll do my best, Rob, but it's a, it's a complex story. And, and of course, the United Kingdom famously has an unwritten constitution. Um, but certainly that bishops in the House of Lords it, it is, is one of the most powerful sides of that unwritten constitution. And the church in England is established by law. So it is the Church of England. So one thing you'll immediately notice a difference with the Church of England, with almost every other church in the Anglican communion, is that if you speak to an Anglican vicar and say how many people in your parish, they will tell you the population, you know, 24,000, you know, 10,000, whatever. Whereas in most other Anglican churches around the world and in many denominations, if you ask that question, people talk about the number of people who go to church, the number of people in the congregation. They have a, we, we have no concept of membership in the Church of England. So we have this, I think, beautiful but quite audacious idea um, that we are the church for everyone, established by the law, um, with a duty of care to everyone, um, regardless of whether you go to church or not, and, and indeed, regardless of whether you're a Christian or not. So I served for some time in, in Huddersfield in West Yorkshire, where 80% of the people who lived in the parish were Muslims or Sikhs. I, I still considered myself to be their parish priest, you know, that I'm still there to serve them. Now, to serve them, of course, meant entering into dialogue with them and community with them to do things with them. But I still, you know, I did, I did, if people ask me how many people in the parish, I would say the whole total number, including all the people who belonged to another faith community. So, so those ideas are at the heart of what it is to be the Church of England. And because it's the church by law established, um, then bishops have always sat in the House of Lords, which is like our second chamber, um, who, whose, whose role it is to scrutinise and amend. It's, it's, a, it's a kind of revising chamber uh, in our democracy. Um, and it therefore means that the voice of Christian faith is at the heart of national life and therefore political life. So in the English, you know, in, in the Houses of Parliament, both in the House of Commons and the House of Lords, proceedings begin each day with prayer. In fact, the House of Lords can't really function without a bishop being there because we're the ones who lead the prayers each day. There's a complicated rotor to make sure one of us is always there. Um, and, uh, and that's how the life of our parliament begins. Now, some people, understandably, and with, you know, and with real integrity, say this is an, an anachronism from, from our past, um, which has, has no relevance in a modern democracy. Uh, I, I understand that. Um, my experience is uh, that um, uh, a, ch a chamber where very, very many different views are represented, including uh, the perspective of faith, adds real value and perspective uh, to, to what is going on. Um, and of course, we we always um, we bow the knee to the House of Commons, the the elected chamber, um, uh, that they will always have supremacy uh, over things. But but we have a we have a role to play. So it, it is complicated. I know it seem it must seem really strange to Americans. I, I do I do get that, but it kind of works, you know. And I, and I think there is you know that, that there's perhaps a rather European way of looking at it. Um, we are cautious about alternatives, which may seem far more logical and sensible, um, but, but carry with them some unintended consequences. 
and our rather strange unwritten system does seem to hold together. We have this saying in the South where I live, uh, Southern United States, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah. Um, poor yeah. grammar there, but you, you know, yeah, it, yeah, it, no, works. No, no, it, I, it works for you. Yeah, so. no, we're familiar with the expression. And, and I think, um, I mean, you know, to be, you know, to be really frank with you, I, I, I'm torn as, as a bishop in the Church of England. I'm torn between, you know, hugely cherishing and valuing these long traditions. I mean, today is, I'm um, speaking to you on the 11th of October, St. Paulinus's day. St. Paulinus was probably the first Bishop of York. There may have been one before him. And uh, he became uh, Bishop of York in the year 627. So here I am, nearly 1,400 years later, his 98th successor. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's a long and beautiful history to be part of. And I cherish that. And it carries with it some deep wisdom. But on the other hand, there are times when it's a kind of colossal burden to keep dragging around with you everywhere you go and you long to shake it off. Um, and, and sometimes that caution about change and doing things differently can be a huge blessing. And sometimes it's a curse. Well, one of the things I imagine that was maybe intimidating for you, I don't want to put words in your mouth. But with your seat in the House of Lords and with your position as Archbishop of York, we are easily able to find on Google search uh, a photo of you and Her Majesty the Queen. Uh, what is it like for you being kind of in this pastoral role, right? Like you are you are a pastor to, to Her Majesty the Queen, this lady who is the head of the state and, and a, yeah. one of the longest reigning monarchs in our in our world. I mean, what is that like? Well, uh, I can't pretend I know the Queen well, but obviously I, ha I have met her. Um, and I think all I would say is it's, it's really impossible to understand Her Majesty the Queen without understanding her Christian faith. Um, it, it, is, it is the key to understanding the whole way she approaches life and certainly the way she approaches what she would. I mean, she may not use the word vocation, but certainly it's very clear that she understands what she does as vocation. Um, and so her faith is absolutely central to her life. And therefore she values those traditions of which she is very much a part, more than me. She values those traditions in our national life. And therefore the bishops, the archbishops, uh, the place of the church is really, really important to her. Hence, um, I and, and others do have the privilege um, of um, offering some service and counsel and certainly everyday prayer uh, for the responsibilities she carries and through her, um, uh, the, the, the government. You talk about vocation and you've written extensively on this. You've written a book on priesthood and vocation and calling. I'm curious, does it feel heavy on your shoulders to have the position that has been around since 627 AD? I mean, has there, has there been, do you feel that when you wake up in the morning, when you have your morning yeah. tea, you know, what yeah. is that like? Yeah, I do. I, I mean, I, I was saying this earlier today. I, I wake up most days and sort of, I don't literally bang my head against the wall, but I wake up most days crying out to God, Lord, why did you, why did you ask me to do this? You know, I'm not clever enough. I'm not good enough. I'm certainly not holy enough. 
You know, it's, I, I can't do it. I wake up most days thinking that. But then I usually, you know, I usually get over that once I've had a cup of tea um, and go to the chapel to say my prayers. Um, and, and actually, if it doesn't sound too flippant, I try not to worry about it. I just kind of think, God, you got me into this. All I'm, well, perhaps I'll tell you my favourite story from the Bible or one of my favourite stories. So there's a story in, now I'm going to forget where it is. Is it one? I'm terrible at remembering. the. I think it's 1 Samuel 9. Apologies to biblical scholars who are listening. Look it up <laughs> if I've got it wrong. It might be 10. But I think it's 1 Samuel 9. It's, about, it's the story of the call of Saul. Um, you know, a problematic character in the Bible. But, but Saul, Saul's dad has lost his donkeys. Okay. Um, it's not, not a kind of brilliantly well-known passage, but I love it. So Saul has lost his donkeys. Uh, Saul's father's lost the donkeys so he says to Saul Saul would you please go and find the donkeys so Saul faithfully goes to look for the donkeys and he looks hither and thither over hill and vale looking for these blessed donkeys which he can't find and on his travels he bumps into the prophet Samuel and gets anointed king of Israel that's the story in a bit of a nutshell so here here am I speaking to you the 98th archbishop of York what am I doing I'm looking for the donkeys. You know, that's all I'm doing. I, I'm faithfully trying to do what I did when I first responded to the call of Christ, which, of course, wasn't even to be a, a priest, let alone a bishop. It's just to be a disciple. Um, I'm faithfully trying to work that out. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? What does it mean to inhabit the earth in a Christian way? Now, that's what, I'm, that's what I worry about each day. And all this other stuff has come along. But that wasn't the plan. The plan was, I'm looking for the donkeys, okay? That's what I'm doing. And, hey, you've made me the 98th Archbishop of York. I'll do that. But I'm not going to let that detract, or I'm going to try not to let that detract, from the central purpose, which is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Um, so I'm trying to inhabit the role, you know, joyfully, humbly. You know, I'm, I'm hugely honoured and, you know, and often terrified and always feeling inadequate, but I try not to I sort of put that to one side. Stephen, don't worry about that. Worry about, you know, the primary vocation uh, to know Christ um, and to uh, live in a Christian way. The Church of England has at times and continues to struggle with the role of LGBTQ individuals in ordained ministry um, and places within the wider church. The Episcopal Church here in the United States has taken a much more forward thinking, which has created obvious problems that I don't have to lecture you about. Yeah. How are you and the Archbishop of Canterbury imagining a future that is broader than your past in regards to LGBTQ individuals, which we're, as we're recording this, today is National Coming Out Day here in the United States. It's a big day mm. of affirming the, the sexuality and, and sexual orientation of people, um, not only in the church, but outside the church. So I'm curious, how are you all imagining a future that brings the Church of England together rather than schisms yeah. off into to horrific uh, realities that none of us want to imagine. Yeah. So, I mean, a, f a few thoughts. I mean, first of all, both Archbishop Justin and I, and I think all, all my Episcopal colleagues, we have been, I think, unequivocal and clear that there is absolutely no place for homophobia in the Church of Jesus Christ. We've been as clear as we can be that everybody is welcome in the church, regardless of their um, sexual orientation. 
uh, we have produced in recent years uh, some pastoral principles um, to, to help churches where there have been difficulties, disagreements, um, failings in, in, in that welcome. Um, so uh, we have already started that work of, uh, well, repenting of, of a past where uh, LGBTQI plus people were often not welcome in our church. Um, but we are not yet at a point where we are able to, um, uh, th th there is no blessing of same-sex unions, no same-sex marriage in, in the Church of England. There are still areas which are contested and where there is disagreement. Um, so that people are welcome is not in question. What remains in question for us is what are the appropriate ways of that welcome being given expression. And we're in the middle right now of a process which we call living in love and faith, which um, is, is quite a profound and deep conversation across the whole church about are there things that we could and should be doing to give expression to that welcome or not? Um, and we have not yet made decisions. Um, it, it's not for me to, you know, the decisions do not belong to me, nor would it be wise for me to predict what they might be. But, um, but the conversations have been rich and I've already detected a movement. I don't mean people changing their minds. You know, people, people um, have strongly held views from different places. It's more than, I, I, I never like the image of two sides. I think there's actually quite a number of sides to this, but people have got strongly held views from different places. Uh, I've not noticed people changing their minds, nor do I want to persuade somebody to change their mind. What I want is for us to live together with our disagreement, to find ways of living together well. Um, I was speaking to somebody this morning about this. I walked the Camino to uh, Santiago to Compostela a few years ago. I learned many things. I walked for a month across the mountains of northern Spain. I learned many things on that walk. But the thing probably almost more than anything that I learned is that when you're up in the hills of mountains of northern Spain on a little track on your own, you can't choose your fellow companions. You know, if somebody's walking with you that day and there's only one village to stay in that night and one little hostel to stay in, these people are your companions, whether you like it or not. And, and I think part of the individualism and consumerism of our societies, and here the UK and the States would be very similar, is, is wealth has given us the luxury of choice, choosing, you know, who we meet with, who are our friends. Um, and, and the love of Christ compels us into something rather different. So my prayer for our church is whatever decisions we come to in the next few years, um, we will find ways of living together with our disagreements, making it absolutely clear that absolutely everyone is welcome in the church. Speaking of welcome, you have been someone who is active in the field of racial reconciliation. I don't have the statistics in front of me of what the Church of England looks like in regards to its racial makeup, but we can almost guess, as it is here in the United States, many yeah. mainline Protestant churches um, that, that, I, that I have worked with are, are predominantly white, and it's the most segregated hour to borrow from Dr. King. Um, I, I find your own journey to be incredibly interesting and compelling. Um, your work there has been important and necessary. 
Um, please talk about that journey that you've had and yeah. where you are seeing the church come alive and the conversations that are nuanced and, and complex and, and, and difficult sometimes. Yeah, I mean, there, there are so many things. I mean, one of our hopes in the Church of England at the moment is we, we, we're, we're praying that we might become a simpler church, a bolder church, but also a humbler church. You know, we, we have to recognize in so many areas our, our failings, you know, my own personal failings, our failures as an institution. We have to be more penitent. We have to learn. Um, and um, there, there is racism in our church. Um, uh, back in the 1950s and 60s, where we f- first saw what you might think of as mass immigration to this country from uh, our own Commonwealth of Nations, people with British passports, uh, Anglicans uh, coming and being and being treated appallingly and, and turned away from our churches. I mean, it's a shameful, shameful story, um, and it and it's not the sort of thing that can be healed quickly. Um, but we have just recently set up a racial justice commission, um, and I have tried to lead by example in this in my own ministry. I'm sure I've failed many times, um, but actually, I, I was I was kind of I was yeah I suppose I was kind of radicalised. Although I don't think it's, it's not, loving your neighbour is not a radical position. Uh, it is it is just in comparison with the rest of the world who love to build walls around ourselves. Um, but um, I, I, but. Before I went off to train for the priesthood, um, I spent a year working at a hospice with the dying in South London. Um, And I just worked as a ward orderly, you know, making tea, mopping the floor, doing basic things on the ward. And um, it was at the time, um, and I was the only white man in a team of black women. Uh, And uh, there was, it was at the time of, there was some, some kind of race related riots and troubles going on in South London where the hospice was at the time and on the Monday morning after there'd been a lot of trouble over the weekend in a place called Brixton um, I was working with Grace that day we worked in in partnerships and um, successive people nearly always white men uh, would pass us as we're working in the ward and make some sort of silly little joke to Grace about, you know, had she been rioting at the weekend? Had she smashed up a bus shelter? Had she done this or that? The little jokes on their own were mean-spirited, but the accumulation of them over a day was horrendous. And late in the afternoon, a quite a senior consultant came by and made a joke to Grace, and she snapped. Uh, and she snapped and told this consultant what she thought of him um, and stomped off. He then took me to one side, and I can't remember his exact words, but it was something like, you know, what is, what is it with these people? You know, can't they take a joke? And, um, you know, that was a little moment of truth. I took a deep breath. You know, I'm just, I'm just the guy with a mop cleaning the floor. This is a senior doctor. And I just took a deep breath and just told him, I said, look, I've been working with Grace all day. You are like the 20th or 30th person to make that same little joke um, and uh, it was just a tiny, tiny, tiny experience of what it is to be, in her case, you know, a black working class woman in a, in a white man's world. Um, and so, yeah, I've, I've, I've simply, you know, the biblical vision is of a new humanity where 
these barriers of separation are broken down. Um, you know, the great vision at the end of the book of Revelation, every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. Um, and I think we diminish the gospel when we fail to, um, you know, to live that out. So I'm trying to be part of the change that we need in the Church of England. I believe that you are a part of that change, both in the Church of England and beyond. And you have a new book uh, you've written. I saw it's coming to the Americas soon. Um, yeah. could, could you quickly just tell us uh, a sense of what we have to anticipate in finding your newest book? Yeah. Um, so the book's called Dear England, and it begins with, I think you mentioned it, that chat on a, chat on a station platform to a young woman saying why you're a priest. And I said, because of God and because I want to change the world. And so we got into a chat, but we're on a station. She's got to get her train. I've got to get mine. Uh, it wasn't a long chat. When I sat on the train, as happens with these conversations, I was thinking, oh, I wish I'd said that or if only I'd said the other. Um, and also I realized I didn't even know her name. And I wanted to write to her, but I didn't know her name. And because her question seemed to me to embody that longing that I so often encountered in British culture. I thought, well, I'm going to write a letter. I'm going to write that letter to her to say what I would have said if I'd had more time. Um, but I can't write to her. So she became England. And, um, and, so, and so really the book is, is simply a letter to this nation, but I hope can be enjoyed by other nations saying, this is why I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. This is where it's led me. But most of all, this is the difference it can make to the world. I'm, I'm stunned because, you know, you're such a, a valuable conversation partner, not only for England, but for the entire world, I feel like. And I'm glad you're now on a, a larger stage for all of us to witness. Um, one of the things we ask everyone here who comes on this podcast is, is one final question. Who or what do you find easy to love? Oh, well... Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, uh, sorry to give you such an obvious answer, but the thing that, of course, jumps into my mind is my wife, my family, my kids. Um, um, uh, and, um, yeah, because these are the people with whom I share my life. Um, and so loving them doesn't even feel, it's, it's like, it almost feels like, it's, you know, it's, you don't make a decision to love them. Though, of course, in marriage, you do need to make a decision every day to, to recommit yourself. But yeah, you know, most people, most people have to make an appointment to see me. My life is busy and pressured. But, you know, if one of my kids phones me now, I will phone them back at the very first opportunity or I'll drop what I'm doing because they're my kids. But the, the, the other thing I'd say, what do I find easy to love? Um, uh, I, I started off talking to you about the picture by Craig Yachinson on my wall. Um, the arts uh, and communicating what it is to be human and the best and most beautiful things about what it is to be human. Uh, you know, hardly a day goes by when I don't listen to uh, Chopin, you know, the piano, um, um, where I don't look at a picture, where I don't read a poem. And it's those things which draw me close to God, draw me closer to my best self. Um, and I think my love of music, poetry, um, pictures, uh, yeah, they're, they're the things that, um, that I truly love and would find it very, very hard to live without. 
Archbishop Stephen Cottrell, thank you so much for coming on Beloved Journal. Thank you, Rob. Beloved Journal is hosted by Rob Lee and Mandy McDowell. Our theme music is by Mipso, the best band in the world. The podcast was the vision and idea of Stephanie Lee, who continues to produce the show. And Frank the Poodle said I would be remiss if I didn't remind you to check out our website, www.belovedjournal.com.